It's showtime. Don't say it, please. Don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. Hello and welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Show, as always, and thank you for listening. Of course, again, as always, it's very, it's always a treat to have you guys along with me as we chat about movies and what's going on in the movie business, right, in cinema. And uh, you know what? I'll say this. To start out the episode, I always seem to promise we have a guest. Okay, we have a guest for this. We'll get a guest for that. Maybe we'll have a guest for this. And over the last couple episodes, it's not panned out, I admit. But I will say, finally, we do have a guest. The interview is coming up. My friend Quentin Amundsen, who's a frequent collaborator with me on this podcast, he's come on before to talk about the Oscars. We've had some pre-Oscar discussions, some post-Oscar discussion over the past couple of award ceremonies these past few years. So Quentin will join me in a couple of minutes to talk about once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and The Farewell, which are the movies we're discussing today on today's episode. And uh, though before before we get to that, though, before we get to uh, the interview with Quentin and, and, you know, all about Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and all about Lula Wang's The Farewell, because they're both really good movies, even though they're both very different from one another, right? And I, I suspect they will both be players of the Oscars come February or March or whenever the Oscars are now. I'm not exactly sure. Um, I always remember it's just a couple weeks after the Super Bowl, but they changed it now. So it's either at the end of February, the first week of March or something like that. But anyways, both Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Farewell will be players at the Oscars, I suspect. But before we get there, a bit of breaking news, actually. And I'm glad I'm going to get the chance to talk about it with you guys, you know, just just us, because it's a pretty interesting topic. And I feel like it's relevant because we just did the Spider-Man Far From Home episode, if you guys recall. A couple of episodes ago, I had my friend uh, Mark Stanush to come on and talk about everything Spider-Man and Spider-Man's place in the canon and where they're going to go forward with Spider-Man and Tom Holland and Disney's plans for the character and how he's going to be a core member of the Avengers. Well, the news came out a couple of days ago that Sony, which is the company that owns the right to Spider-Man and have been kind of licensing it, renting it, if you want to say, out to Disney and Marvel Studios for the purposes of using him in their movies, Sony and Disney have, uh, I guess, had a bit of a divorce, and now Spider-Man is no longer going to be part of the universe going forward. I don't feel so good. You're all right. I don't, I don't know what's happening. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Sir, please. I know, Peter, we didn't want you to go either. I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh. It's kind of sad scene. And you know what? It's ultimately it's just a corporate move and we all have to live with it. Should I really be that upset that some random comic book character is not going to be in the movies going forward? Yeah, probably not. But you know what? Not unsurprisingly, many people are upset about this. And here's the skinny. Okay. Apparently, and this is all allegedly, let me just put that out there, allegedly all of this happened. It's hard for us to know the details because I'm sure the details will be shrouded in secrecy between the executives at Disney and the executives at Sony. But the word on the street is, I guess, as we're, as we're going to say, has been that Disney wanted essentially a bigger slice of the pie, right? Because I mentioned before we played that clip uh, that Sony is the one licensing out Spider-Man to Disney, right? Sony made a whole bunch of really bad failures with Spider-Man. All the Andrew Garfield movies, the last uh, Tobey Maguire movie, and 
you know, they're not, they haven't been very good. So Sony came to Disney and said, Hey, you guys are really successful with your Marvel movies. Why don't you include Spider-Man? We'll, you know, we'll, we'll rent him to you in Disney because I'm sure they want to use Spider-Man for a long time. Agreed to the deal. But Sony is the one taking home the majority of the profits. Marvel kind of does all the legwork and Sony, you know, they, I think they approve some storylines for most for the most part, but I believe how it's how it's structured is that Sony takes home like ninety to ninety five percent of the profit, and Disney takes home whatever is left. Right. So after Spider Man Homecoming, a couple of years ago, made well over a billion dollars. After you know, Spider Man was a huge part of the various Avengers movies, and those made well over a billion dollars. And of course, Endgame is the highest grossing movie of all time, as we've talked about. And Spider-Man Far From Home has also made a well over a billion dollars. I'm sure Disney wanted to uh, renegotiate terms of the deal. I am altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. Yeah, there you go. That's a Darth Vader clip for you. I feel like I feel like that's how people view Disney, right? The you know the the hatchet henchman coming in to you know change the deal, and you know you're you're so freaked out by Disney paying attention to you that you'll just go along with it, but. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like Sony ended up walking away from the table saying, you know what, you guys want 50% and, you you know, we, we don't want 50%. We want all, most of it, right? And I, I, I guess that's their right. Whether you want to say that's, you know, that's morally right or wrong for, you know, I guess that's another, that's another discussion. But it's, the, it's, it's Sony's right to say this is what we want to do because I guess technically it is their property, right? Even though, yes, I know, we all know that Spider-Man is a Marvel property and therefore should be a Disney property. You know what? It's Sony's right. Now, do I agree with that? Absolutely not, because will Sony just butcher the character? Absolutely Sony's going to butcher the character. If Spider-Man 3 and then the amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 are any indication, the next Spider-Man movie, and it's probably not going to be called Spider-Man 3, it'll all be called Spider-Man colon, you know, insert subtitle here, but I don't know, it's, it's, it's just likely going to be garbage, right? I will say, I'm going to go see it. You're going to go see it too, because I think, as much as we all like to see a well-made movie, I think there is something to be said for wanting to see a train wreck disaster of a movie. Like, I almost wonder if... Because I'll say this, that I think there is still room for a deal to be made. I mean, Spider-Man 3 certainly is not in development in terms of filming, right? Far From Home just came out. It's still in theaters in some places, right? So it'll probably be at least a couple of years before there's a sequel to Far From Home. It'll just be weird because if they don't come to an agreement soon, when they do start production on this movie, and Tom Holland is still attached to be Spider-Man, at least as of right now, you know, he won't be able to mention any of the events that the MCU has created, right? Like, nothing about the snap, nothing about Iron Man, and those two, even if you leave out everything else, which is still pretty big as, as well, like Happy, for example, played by John Favreau, you know, even if you leave him out, the idea of Tony Stark's influence in this version of Spider-Man's life, and the influence that the snap had on literally everybody's life, is weird because now they can't reference it whatsoever. And then, of course, on Disney's side, they won't be able to reference Spider-Man. You know, they were kind of setting up... I've, sp- I've said this to a couple other people. You know, now that the, the trio of Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor are more or less done. Thor is still involved in the movie universe, and we know Thor 4 is coming out, but that'll probably be the last we see of Chris Hemsworth. But let's say for now... Thor has been kind of been sidelined, right? So that means the trio, the original Avengers trio, is now, for the most part, retired, right? Tony Stark is dead, Captain America has aged out, and Thor is off doing God knows what and is probably going to be moved on at some point eventually if he doesn't die in Thor 4, right? So let's just say they're trying to build a new trio. The new trio is obviously going to be the Black Panther, Captain Marvel, and Spider-Man, right? And now uh, one of their core trio has been 
axed, essentially. Now, I will say, that sucks creatively. It sucks for Kevin Feige, and I'm sh- because I'm sure they have been planning a lot of stuff around Spider-Man, but you might ask yourself, why on earth would Kevin Feige, who has clearly laid the groundwork for all of these different things, why would he bet on a character that had such a flimsy basis to begin with? I mean, even if Disney hadn't gone back to the negotiating table to say, hey, we want more money, Sony at any time could have just been like, okay, you know what, we don't like this deal, we're canceling it, and, and pulled the rug out from Disney anyways, right? I mean, that is what happened, but it could have been done in any number of ways, and it wouldn't have been Disney's fault, even though I would I would venture to say this version of the, of the scenario is probably as much Disney's fault as it is Sony's fault, but I, I would venture a guess to say that the reason Kevin Feige felt he could, you know, be a little more daring with the future of Spider-Man and risk losing him as he now has is because, surprise, he has a couple of uh, a couple of characters called the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, not to mention all of their villains that are associated with, like Magneto and, I don't know, who, who do you want else do you want to guess? Uh, Doctor Doom, certainly. These guys are kind of waiting in the wings. And so do I think that Spider-Man's, you know, exclusion from the MCU now is going to kill the MCU? Absolutely not. Is it disappointing? Absolutely. Do I think that maybe, just a little bit, it it kind of accelerates the timeline for the X-Men and, and the Fantastic Four and Doctor Doom and so on to be included in the MCU? I do. I do think that, but again, we have to wait and see. In a couple of days, actually, D23, the Disney Expo that takes place in Los Angeles, is going to kind of kick off, so we'll get to see you know, if there's any announcements made there. I'm sure we're going to get some maybe release dates for Black Panther 2 and Captain Marvel 2. Maybe we'll hear a little bit more about the future of Spider-Man. Maybe we'll hear a little bit more about the mutants and uh, the general X-Men and the Fantastic Four there, right? So, you know what? We'll revisit this issue in a little more detail as to what was revealed at D23 in the next episode. But for now, yeah, Spider-Man, we'll see you in the next go-around when you're uh, starring in Spider-Man 3 with uh, Tom Hardy, it sounds like. All right, we have made you wait long enough. I promised a guest, and now you shall have him. Quinton Amundsen, my good friend, and of course, as I mentioned, frequent collaborator with me on the Showtime Movie Podcast in terms of Oscars. Like I said, he's come on to talk about some pre-Oscar work, some post-Oscar work as well. We've made predictions in the past. We've really broken down the uh, whole the whole gamut of awards. And here to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Farewell with me, here he is, Quentin Amundsen. Quentin, thanks so much for joining me today once again. Always great to do this with you, Shao. So, Quentin, uh, we get a chance to discuss today a couple of pretty different movies. They're very different from one another. And I guess I wanted to start with uh, the latest Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, Quentin has been doing uh, a lot of these movies over the course of his career. I mean, we all know his pretty, you know, his pretty well-discussed filmography, right? And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the latest edition. And I guess... My question to you to start, actually, is do, how, how do you think or do you think a lot of moviegoers today generally know who Sharon Tate was? You know what I mean? Like, do you think a lot of people who are going to the movies in 2019 know who she was? Uh, honestly, I saw in the news show that a lot of people were kind of confused by the ending. The mo- younger moviegoers, right. they didn't really understand the significance of uh, the particular event that Quentin was really documenting in this film. So I would say that a lot of people that went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood don't really know the history of Sharon Tate and her connection to the Manson family. Because I I, kind of agree with you, because I would say that 
Charles Manson is perhaps the more, I mean, it's, as awful as it is to say, he's the more famous member of this whole, I guess, ordeal. And I mean, as you and I, we've both seen the movie. He's only in the movie for, I would say, what, like 30 to 45 seconds, and which is probably for the yeah. best. But I think most people, when they think of Charles Manson, while they may not know the particulars, I, I, th- I would say that most people alive today have at least heard the name in association with, like, the idea of murder. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. That's certainly, uh, you know, very well-versed. And that was something that uh, I did kind of study a little bit myself so I would be ready to go in. I know that uh, it was definitely going to maybe be a bit of a point of contention before the movie was released when uh, it was initially announced that he would be tackling this time period. People would be very concerned about, oh, how much is they going to be glorifying uh, what Manson was able to do and how would he handle all that sensitivity. And I'm actually really glad that he only showed up for 30 seconds and really put the focus on uh, really respecting and paying homage to who Sharon Tate was as a young actress coming into the industry. So how how did you feel about, because one of the things Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did a lot, not just a couple of times, we did it more than once, was not only did we, we got to see a snippet of a Sharon Tate movie, and I found it interesting because in, so we get the Rick Dalton character who is uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, right? And you kind of get the sense that Leonardo DiCaprio, I mean, you see it in the trailer, there's that line, uh, I'm a has-been, buddy, and, and then you see in the film itself, uh, you see all the kind of chances that Rick Dalton could have had. Like, there's the Great Escape, and he could have been the Steve McQueen character, right? Or there's like the episode of I think it was um, I think it was called what was it, the cop TV show F- FBI? I think it was called. And, yes, it was. Okay, so FBI, and you see his place in the in that episode, and I got the sense that like there were some that they were like, they digitally altered, like the Great Escape, and some they maybe just filmed entirely to make it look like a '60s episode. And then when we saw Sharon Tate, it was just like, you don't see Margot Robbie digitally inserted into that movie, right? Like we just saw a clip of an actual Sharon Tate movie that exists in real life from the 60s, I guess, right? And I thought that was really interesting the way they did that. I really thought that was a great move on Quentin's part. You could tell he was kind of writing a love letter to this actress. And one of the best ways that he really respected her legacy was having her uh, in those scenes and also discussing her method as an actress. Apparently, for a simple little fight scene like you saw in the movie, she sought out the services of Bruce Lee to make sure she would be able to do be a credible fighter. So uh, she also had that really unique spark to her. Margot Robbie really showed her as somebody that just kind of radiated joy. And one of the highlights of the film is when she's actually in the movie theater with uh, moviegoers watching herself on screen and just the joy that she gets from that experience. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Margot Robbie definitely, I think you put it a great way, very succinctly, uh, she radiates joy. And I think in almost every single scene she's in, she's smiling, she's happy. I mean, there's a scene, I think, at the Playboy Mansion where she kind of just immediately arrives and then just goes dancing. And then, you know, you see her later on with her friends and she's, like, dancing to music when Brad Pitt's fixing the antenna next door. And it happens pretty often. And I think... Margot Robbie was a really good choice, and I, it was really cool to see uh, Sharon Tate, like her version of Sharon Tate, look around the movie theater, and as, as she's the klutz, as she calls herself, and you know she's falling over luggage and doing all these other kind of things. I thought that was a pretty cool, a pretty cool choice, and very respectful by Quentin Tarantino. And I guess 
something that was that will always be, I guess, you know, a, a point of debate for Quentin Tarantino movies is his usage of violence, right? I mean, this is a staple in, I would say, virtually every Quentin Tarantino movie, but in this one, you know, the violence was pretty tame, I would say, right up until you see Brad Pitt with the uh, lace cigarette at the end, and then it kind of just unravels from there, right? So do you think... I guess, like, do you think that it was too much, or do you think that it was Quentin Tarantino toning it down a little bit? Like, where do you where do you make of the latest version of uh, Tarantino style violence? I guess. In this particular case, I really liked the end uh, because he really drew these characters so well, and he really understood uh, the ups and downs of Rick Dalton and Clifford Booth that. When they, when you know, Cliff got to be the hero at the end, and uh, obviously Rick Dalton got to relive his action glory days and kind of feel on like he was on a high after the movie kind of kicked him down throughout. It was kind of a glorious moment to watch them uh, take down these guys. Obviously, it's revisionist history again, right? Because those actual Manson killers did not uh, go to kill Rick Dalton. These were the people that took out Sharon Tate. So. Once again, it's Quentin Tarantino revising history, uh, turning it on its head so this Hollywood actor and a stuntman would take out these uh, radical people. And I thought it was a really uh, triumphant moment for these guys, just understanding the arc that both of them went on in the film to have this moment of triumph, beating back the bad guys. And yeah, it's really visceral. It's really tough to watch, uh, particularly what Brad Pitt does to a one of the girls that he's attacking, he bangs her head right. in the boards over and over again. And it's a tough thing to watch. But I think character-wise, it works. No, I would, agree. I would agree with you there, too. I think it works definitely within the context of the movie. I'm on board, especially for Cliff's character, Brad Pitt's, uh, Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth. I'm, I'm on board in the film with the idea that even though it's presented to you kind of in a comedic fashion, the part where he, you know, supposedly, I guess it's implied that he kills his wife when he's on the boat, you know, and he puts, he's holding the harpoon gun and then he like cracks the beer open and she's like berating him. I'm, I'm kind of on board the idea that he didn't actually kill his wife. You know what I mean? Like, I think my, I guess my, I think it's, I, I want to say it's, it's meant for you to think that he did actually kill his wife and got away with it. And maybe he like harpooned her and he, by, by accident or something or when he was drunk and that's why he got off easy. But I, I feel like, I feel like at least the way I read it in the movie, it could be interpreted also that he didn't actually kill his wife and maybe she died some other way. Cause it's not actually explicitly stated. You just see that one scene and then Tarantino kind of leaves it for you. Right. So what, what do you think? I am of the opinion that he did not kill his wife either. And the fact that they cut out right before the so-called moment. And I think uh, Cliff Booth, he really is a guy that is under, misunderstood in every facet of his life. So the fact that so many people are convinced that he killed his wife makes me think that that's not actually how it went down. It's, uh, it, it was just kind of a good uh, moment for him to uh, realize that complexity. And that's what makes this performance so great by Brad Pitt and, you know, he's obviously consumed by guilt, even if he didn't kill his wife. That was obviously a very bad marriage. And uh, he also is in a place where he's not feeling good about his career because uh, he's a stuntman because of this rumor that he killed his wife. He's kind of poisoned on a set. There's this whole scene with uh, Kurt Russell where he's like, I don't like the vibe this guy brings on the set. Right. Uh, I don't like him around my wife or anything like that because 
this whole rumor really kind of saddled to him. I think it's more of a powerful narrative device that he doesn't kill his wife, but he still has to live with all this uh, talk that he is a killer of his wife. All right, let's talk about Cliff Booth then a little bit more because Brad Pitt in this movie, you know, he it's it's pretty remarkable that Brad Pitt is in his fifties and he he takes his shirt off and he's he you know he's absolutely ripped and I think to myself man there must be a lot of like fifty year old guys who see this movie and think to my, think to themselves oh I don't look like that <laughs> you know like Brad Pitt looks so so great and he's he acts so well and I think it's not this is not an uncommon uh, narrative that people put out there like I saw it on I think it was Deadspin. Or something like that, and I've heard other people say this over the many years of Brad Pitt's career, but that he's a a character actor stuck in a leading actor's body, and I think he really showed his acting chops in this movie. I mean, he certainly has in many other of his films before, but he was—I I don't know—he just radiates cool in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, he just every moment he's on the screen, every kind of easy smile, every kind of sly look at just just past the camera or at, at any other character he interacts with. Yeah, I don't know. It's just he he really I find seemed to give a performance that really had some gravity to it as Cliff Booth in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, honestly, preparing to come on this podcast today, show I thought of a conversation that you and I had when we left the TIFF screening last year of Old Man and the Gun with Robert Redford. Right. You were talking about how very few actors could radiate that effortless term like Robert Redford, you know, maybe Harrison Ford could do that. I think Brad Pitt kind of belongs in that uh, pantheon, a guy that can really project this aura of cool and charisma and gravity. And that was really all on display. And I really credit Quentin Tarantino, too, because he really writes for the uh, screen persona of his actors. And I think this is one of the best performances of Brad Pitt's career. And it was really neat to see him uh, show off that eccentricity and combine it with the cool. Because, like you said, a character actor, a lot of his best roles are really eccentric supporting characters, right? more so than his movie star lead role. No, it's true. I, I I was just thinking of some of his other his other movie roles. Like, remember Burn After Reading? That was a like that was a really odd movie, and he and he he was so opposite his general his general roles right and i don't know that he, he's he's a very versatile actor and, and and i guess what do you think do you think brad pitt has any chance at any awards recognition i mean we're coming to the end of august now and you know tiff is going to kick off in a couple of weeks and i'm sure you and i are both going to see our fair share of movies at tiff and you know the rest of the you know all these other movies are coming out the rest of the year uh, you know the various other film festivals the lead up to the oscars later in 2020 early 2020 so yeah, I guess. Do you think there's any chance of Brad Pitt getting any any awards recognition? Because I know I know one of the things that may, may be a strike against him unfairly, I think. But I find that a lot of these movies that get released, or you know, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here, quote unquote, earlier in the year, kind of get a little left by the wayside. But then I guess what it has going forward is that a, it's Brad Pitt, and b, it's Quentin Tarantino, right? And he has two big narratives going for him. And you know that narratives are a huge draw. Um, there's the overdue narrative, working in a favor. He's a guy that's put in almost 30 years of his performances, three previous nominations. Uh, so it's really kind of his time. So there's going to be people uh, banging on the drum for that. And he also maybe has the narrative that this is the performance of his career. And he also 
is a guy that has really cultivated a good reputation as a producer. He produced Moonlight, 12 Years a Slave, Vice, uh, a lot of other great films this decade. So he's respected in that arena. And I think the tech categories will be very keen on trying to vote him because he really is a guy that projects the importance of stunt people in Hollywood. And you hear every year, oh, we need a stunt category in the Oscars. We need these types of professionals to be recognized. I think he has an excellent chance to be nominated. I think he has stands a good chance of winning. I know that there are some uh, tough competitors. You have maybe Al Pacino and Joe Pesci in a supporting actor race. I should say that I'm projecting him to go supporting and DiCaprio to go lead. Right. So, I mean, you have the guys from the Irishman. You maybe have Christian Bale and Ford versus Ferrari or Anthony Hopkins and the two popes. So you have some big heavy hitters that's been around the Oscars before. But I don't know, with those narratives, and the fact that, like I said, I think this is Brad Pitt's very best performance. I think he stands a chance of winning. I think the nominations are guaranteed, in my opinion. I know that's a strong thing to say in uh, August, but I'm standing by it. All right, well, we'll, we'll revisit this clip. We'll, we'll save the clip, and then we'll play uh, right or wrong when we, when we do our Oscars episode uh, in February. Um, we, we can't talk about Once Upon a Time and not talk about, like you mentioned, Leonardo DiCaprio. I thought he was... Just fantastic. He was really magnificent in a couple of scenes. I think the two scenes that stand out to me are, de- are definitely, you know, the scene where he has the breakdown in his trailer when he kind of mis- missteps on some of his lines. You know, and there's, there's that great scene with uh, Timothy Oliphant when the camera is on him and then it pans around to Oliphant back to uh, DiCaprio, and then they screw it up so they have to reset the camera, and then they do the scene again, which I thought was really great. But because he screwed it up, he gets so mad at himself. And I think, I think there was an interview with uh, Quentin Tarantino saying that uh, that Rick Dalton's character is supposed to be bipolar, and of course in 1969, uh, you know, they, they didn't exactly treat for bipolar disorder, right? So there was that scene that I thought was really great, and then almost as a companion piece of that scene, when he does the, and he ad-libs a line uh, with I guess it was Luke Perry's final scene, right? And uh, in when yeah. uh, when the guy comes in to get the ransom money, and at the end the little girl whispers, "Oh, that was the finest acting I've ever seen," and then he like cries a little bit. I don't know. He 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 gave a great performance as Leonardo DiCaprio usually does, but those two really stood out to me. How about you? Oh yeah, definitely. That scene in the trailer is masterful, and uh, for anybody that's been in performing. Maybe you're not kind of in a wreck like he is, but people relate to that scene. You either are a star on radio or you're a guy that is rehearsing for a big scene and you feel like you messed it up. You do kind of beat yourself up a little bit. So I think there's a lot of relatability. And what's really great about uh, DiCaprio, like I said, that Quentin Tarantino writes to his actor's persona, I think that DiCaprio able to hit so many different emotions in a span of a single scene. That's one of his biggest strengths. And the fact that uh, this Rick Dalton is so bipolar really allows you to tap into this guy's uh, strengths as an actor. And I really enjoyed his emotional vulnerability, and that created some good comedy. And uh, he has a couple of uh, great moments uh, with a particular weapon that he used in a couple of his films. Not going to give it away, but it's pretty cool to get him uh, shooting some uh, bad guys in the course of the film, too, in addition to those uh, scenes that you were talking about. All right, last question on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, then we'll move on. 
Uh, I just want to get your quick take. Where would you... So this is a, the ninth film in Quentin Tarantino's, uh, I guess, film canon, let's call it. Where would you place it? For me, I got. I kind of have it at number five. Like I, I think I would still put... I mean, Pulp Fiction, I feel like it's hard that for any movie to top that in terms of his canon, but I think I would put, probably put Pulp Fiction, Django, Reservoir Dogs, and Inglorious Bastards ahead of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I go back and forth on Jackie Brown, whether I would put it ahead of it, uh, but... At worst, Once Upon a Time is probably sixth, but and at, at high a five. I just wanted to get your your take on where you would put it in his uh, film canon, as we're calling it. I'd say four. Okay. Um, I would say that Pulse Fiction is better, and Glorious Bastards is better, and I combine the two Gil Bills as one. Sure. Okay. Bloody affair, as they call it, and then maybe it would be uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, yeah, so kind of in that mid-range, okay. uh, just like you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do want to just mention a couple of other performances that stood out very quickly. Sure, yeah. I really like the girl in the film, the 10-year-old Julia Butters. Right. Uh, she was great at the method actors. And the dog was also a standout in this role. <laughs> uh, and that was really also enjoyable about the film. But it's really the Brad and Leo film, and the fact that these two characters are among the best that Clinton's ever created uh, kind of has it on the upper echelon of Tarantino films. You know, I find it interesting the Quentin Tarantino, well, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood kind of ride was almost derailed at uh, Cannes. Remember, it was because it, I think it premiered at Cannes a couple months ago, right? And I want to say it was it came in second, I think, in the Palme d'Or voting, which is the for those who don't know the kind of you know the best film of the festival to Parasite which is directed uh, by the Korean director who also directed Snowpiercer and Okja, right? And I want to say it's... I, I, can't, I can't say that's very... That's happened very often, I would think. Oh, yeah. It's uh, certainly uh, definitely, uh, you know, a big surprise with that parasite getting some uh, major buzz. So the fact that Once Upon a Time of Hollywood was there was also just really good homage because 25 years earlier, it was Tarantino winning for... Uh, Pulp Fiction, and there was that controversy over the amount of screen time that Margot Robbie had. There were some people that were uh, dismissing the film, like being like, oh, well, this is a movie star that you have in this film. Why did she get so few lines? I don't understand why that was a big deal, but Tarantino did kind of have a miffed and angered reaction to that, so that really blew up the story, but as you and I discussed, I think they really handled the Sharon Tate uh, storyline very well and were able to weave it into the narrative of uh, what Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio's characters were dealing with. No, I agree with you. I think uh, I, I think Quentin Tarantino kind of just attracts some of that, uh, you know, but what, because of the, his movies are so polarizing, like I've seen so much discussion online and elsewhere about this is his best movie and this is his worst movie, right? So, I mean, there's, it always... These kind of movies always seem to inspire lots of debate, which is I, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it today. I, I do want to have a, have you on also today to talk about uh, The Farewell, which is directed by Lulu Wang. And that's another movie. I, I, it's funny because in comparison to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which opened, you know, in a giant releases and I believe it's it's uh, Tarantino's most commercially successful film to date, beating out Django from a couple of years ago. You know, it's made this, like, you know tons of money. And The Farewell, by comparison, it's made a decent amount of money for 
a, a release that like it got right but i mean it's not necessarily a commercial blockbuster i would say right like it's and yet i would say i dare say of all the movies i've seen in 2019 i think it's the best movie i've seen all year what do you what do you think a hundred percent i for me it's easily the best it's the one film this year that i've loved from start to finish and it's just the universality of the story yeah there's a specific time and place where this is that chinese family going overseas um and there is definitely a lot of uh, traditional chinese values in the film but the universal uh, side of the story just really speaks to everybody and the cool thing about the film, like you said, it's not a commercial blockbuster, but it is a film that is generating some momentum with the indie box office. Uh, I want to hear a cool statistic show. Sure, yeah. Uh, the very first weekend, it had a per screen average of $88,000, which beat Avengers Endgame, which had a per screen average of $76,000. Wow. So people really wanted to see this movie. The fact that it has the number one screen average of the year, beating the highest grossing film of all time to boot. That's pretty remarkable. So, I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so it's the film that they're just trying to get rolling out little by little. It started off in uh, two screens, and now it's slowly, week by week, worked it up to close to 1,000. And it's just trying to generate some momentum, and I think it's the story that people are responding to. I would say that Lulu Wang, the director, she really infused this movie with, you know, just some some real... It was very heartfelt. It was very real. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, of course, uh, as she has said, The Farewell is based on an experience that she herself went through. So she took this story and made it into a movie. I, th- I follow her on Twitter, and she tweeted something like, oh, how did you get the inspiration to do this? And she basically tweeted, her mother said to her that no one would be interested in this story. And so she said, oh, yeah, like, want a bet? And she, she made a story about it. And, and look, at, look at where it is now, right? I mean, it's generating award consideration, like we're kind of talking about. It's making money. It's, it's touched a lot of people in a lot of very real ways. And I, I would argue that it's because many people, like, you don't have to be Chinese necessarily to know what this movie's about. I mean, it, it definitely has some very specific cultural aspects to it. Like, there's a scene where they go to the, the, the uh, graveyard, kind of midway through. I think the actual, the very idea of not telling a relative that they have some kind of illness is also a very culturally specific thing, I would say, right? But I think a lot of people in general probably have experience, like I certainly have, uh, you know, the the idea of saying goodbye to a grandparent, for example, right? And all, all of my grandparents have since passed away over the course of my life. And, you know, and each time it was different. But in the same sense, this movie touched me in that way because it reminded me of them. And it made me feel, you know, something about my family that I hadn't felt in a long time, which I thought was both really cool and really sad, which I really liked, I have to admit. That was the same for me. Like my one grandma died six months ago, uh, six months ago, actually. And I found myself thinking about her during the movie and also my other grandma who passed away six years ago. And the ending really affected me. I'll admit it, Joe. I don't think I've cried <laughs> at the end of a movie uh, like I did in this one for a very long time. Like it really just hit me in an emotional place. And it was beautiful. Also really funny, too. Um, and speaking of grandmas, the grandma was the one providing the laugh in this thing. This actress, 
uh, Zhao Shuzhen from China, she's a riot. Like, she was just really making me chuckle throughout the entire movie. Yeah, Zhao Shuzhen as Nainai, she... I. Honestly, I'm on the bandwagon, which thankfully seems to be growing with every theater it hits. I'm on the bandwagon that she should be getting some awards recognition. I mean, not that like she necessarily needs it, not that anyone necessarily needs it, but I feel like she was like the the engine of this movie, right? I mean, there are some other actors in this movie that were really great, like Zima, who has been, you know, he's relatively familiar to Western audiences, and of course, Aquafina, who is who is also really great. We'll talk about Aquafina in a second, but. Uh, Zhao Suzanne, she, I think, I honestly think not only was The Farewell the best movie I've seen all year, but I think her performance actually at certain points, I was thinking about this as I was leaving the theater, it made me forget that I was watching an actor acting. You know what I mean? Like, I I felt like I was watching a real thing unfold in front of me in the screen, and it was so spellbinding, it was so captivating that afterwards I kind of was like, oh my gosh, I forgot I was at the movies, you know? It's like you, it's like, did Aquafina get her real grandmother to be in the film with her? Like, the bond was so uh, convincing between them. They really formed a great bond, and it's, it definitely warmed the heart. You know, them doing their little exercise routine, the way that the grandma would make these little remarks about the shape of her butt and <laughs> her dating life. Uh, you know, things that grandmas do. You sometimes have grandmas ask about what the relationship prospects are their grandson. You know, there's just so many different little things that she did that made this come alive. And yeah, it was the same thing. It's like you're watching a documentary of a family rather than a narrative feature. Yeah, no, it was really, it was really great. And of course, like you mentioned, uh, did Aquafina get her real grandmother? And Aquafina herself, I thought was nothing short of fantastic. Like I've, I think I've been a little critical of her in other movies. Like I remember when I saw Ocean's 8, and I, I didn't love her performance in that because I felt it was like a little too over the top considering everyone else in that movie was so, like it was, you know, that whole, the whole vibe of the Oceans movies is supposed to be one of, you know, the ultimate cool and very slick. And I felt that it kind of stood out in that movie. I loved her in Crazy Rich Asians. I thought she was hilarious. She might have been one of my favorite parts of that really great movie. And then I see The Farewell. And, you know, she... She, it was so understated, and she was very, like, reserved and muted, but when she had to, it, she's very effortlessly funny, I find. And I don't know if that's just my own expectation or if that is just that that's how good of an actor she is because she just, anytime she wanted to, even though even when she was sad and crying or she had the kind of this, like, forlorn expression on her face, it was just, she, she could turn on like that and I would laugh or I would smile or chuckle and it would alleviate some of the tension with all the kind of overlying sadness in a heartbeat. Yeah, she just really put us with her. You really felt her journey, her uh, conflicting uh, viewpoints going on in her head as you go along with her family, even though it's a difficult thing to lie to your grandma and also the beauty and trying to relieve her grandma from the pain. It really does depend on where she's back and forth, a lot of conflict, but she's also just still able mind, to mind some great laughs in her performance, and uh, this really is a genuine um, beauty in the way that she's underplayed everything, and I know that Chow uh, Zuzan is worthy of a supporting actress consideration, but Aquafina should maybe uh, get some love in the awards race, too, because I think that she was a really good vessel to uh, share this story, but... Uh, at the very least, I want the script to be recognized. Lulu Wang did an excellent job, and 
Uh, you may be interested in knowing that uh, she is currently in a relationship with Barry Jenkins, who is uh, also very good at telling human stories with Moonlight and uh, if Beale Street could talk. And uh, definitely seems like uh, Lulu Wang, his partner, is also very good at telling really human stories that speak to everybody across the world. Yeah, no, I would, I would love to see the movie get some recognition on an international level, awards recognition, I should say, because I feel like these indie movies, you know, like we, we live in this era where, and I, I don't really have a, an inherent issue with it, but we live in an, an era where, you know, Avengers Endgame and Spider-Man and all these other, you know, blockbuster movies, whether they're good or not, are getting are getting most of, the do- of a consumer's dollar. You know what I mean? Like if you have... Like if, if your average moviegoer has the chance to go to the movies and they see on the kind of panel in front of them, they see Avengers Endgame and then they see The Farewell, I feel like chances are they're going to go see Avengers, not because The Farewell is bad, but because, you know, these movies have, I, I find that the, the, the appetite for your average person to see, you know, unique and new movies is decreasing because of the investment into superheroes and and, you know, Star Wars and other things like that, right? And, and again, there's something wrong with that, but at the same time, it's hard for filmmakers like Lulu Wang and Barry Jenkins and so on to make these unique indie movies and, change. you know, uh, you can even go back to Jordan Peele and Get Out and you can go back even further to other indie filmmakers and the, the, the arena for these films seems to be shrinking and I feel like these kind of movies need to get recognition on a wider scale Sometimes, you know what I mean, for the wider audience to go see it. I know it should be the other way around, but I find that, you know, if a movie gets recognized at the Oscars, then it comes back to theaters and it does a little well, does a little better, and people go see it more, if that, if that makes sense, you know? Oh, and I agree, but I also think the studios need to try to take a little bit more risk. They're just so uh, risk-averse right now. They sure. just want to go for these sure things, and it's great that you have these franchises. I'm not begrudging Disney's success. It's great that they have all these franchises that are firing on all cylinders. But I, I agree with you. There needs to be more, more room in the marketplace for uh, these types of human stories. And uh, I actually do have an article that I saw very recently that uh, talks a little bit about the box office success that the farewell is having and why this particular film is one of the rare indie breakout films of the summer. So if you want to mind me reading a few sentences of this article yeah, that ahead, I saw uh, for Joe, uh, and it says, when it comes down to it, people are simply responding to a down-to-earth, homegrown story about real people dealing with real problems. No faceless villains, no explosions, no threats to the human race, just a story about a Chinese family that learns of its matriarch's impending death. With all the larger-than-life films flooding theaters, this is the type of story that moves people, that captures their attention, that's worth building an entire night at the theater around. So hopefully studios take note of the Farewell's astounding success in select communities that it's filling. And each year it seems to give us a ladybird, an inside Lewin Davis, a moonlight that goes viral and shows the potential of homegrown stories and nothing changes. Real change will require some courage from studios to invest more in movies that people can actually see themselves in. That's the key thing. These types of stories like The Farewell, you could relate with that. And like you said, you were talking about how it uh, caused memories of you and your family. That's, people need to see more of those movies where we could really see ourselves in them. No, I agree. That's really well said. And who, who was the author of that article? 
Uh, Travis Bean from Forbes, uh, he wrote writes for a Hollywood Entertainment section. I thought that was a really uh, great observation by him about the importance of these types of films. Absolutely, no, I really like that. I'm definitely going to read the rest of that article uh, when I get home. But uh, so let's let's make a pr- quick prediction. So you made the prediction uh, for Brad Pitt's uh, winning the Best Supporting Actor for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What's your what's your ultimate prediction for the farewell? Uh, let's say Oscar wise. I think for now it has a definite slam dunk for screenplay. I think that's going to happen because the writer's branch really responds to these types of stories. Uh, I think if it continues to get momentum with the limited box office over the next couple of weeks, uh, best picture is on the table. And I think, like you said, you could sense the momentum for Jalous Duzen to grow. So I think that there's a chance for a supporting actress on its best day, I think uh, Aquafina stands a chance, uh, but I know it's unfortunately still a very hard thing to get female directors nominated, but you hope that Lula Wang's in the conversation at least, right? Yeah, exactly. I think like if I had to pick three kind of Oscars that I would love to see it get nominated for, I would say, yeah, I would say Best, uh, best Original Screenplay, I would say Best Picture, and... I would love, I would love best director for Lulu Wang, especially because remember last year we went to go see, um, and I forget what the name of the movie is right now, but De- the, the, De- the Deborah Granick movie with uh, Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace, that's right. And I thought she was going to get nominated for sure. And I, in the end, I guess Leave No Trace didn't have quite the box office legs that The Farewell seems to be having right now. So I guess, if, like you said, if it continues, I feel like it's a little more likely. And I mean, there are. Fortunately, is a couple of other women directors in the race. Uh, I think one of your favorite films last year uh, was Can You Ever Forgive Me, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, Marielle Heller's directing that uh, Tom Hanks to Fred Rogers story, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, right. and Lulu Wang um, is obviously in the race with this, and Greta Gerwig, who actually was nominated for director a couple of years ago, is doing an adaptation of The Little Women. So hoping that there could be one of these women to break through. And at this point, considering it's our, both our favorite films of the year, hopefully it's Lulu Wang. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely pulling for, uh, for Miss Wang, though. But we'll, you know what, Quentin, we'll have to re- resume this conversation in February. Once all the nominations come out, we'll, we'll break them down and make our predictions. How does that sound? That sounds great. And I'm glad that uh, I had an opportunity to speak with you today's show, because these are two films that I uh, like a lot and I Always great to come on one of my favorite podcasts. Awesome. Thanks, man. I will uh, chat with you in February. Sounds great. That will be it from me today. You know, we finally got a guest, as I mentioned. And, uh, you know, we broke down Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, broke down The Farewell, broke down a little bit of the Spider-Man conversation going on in movie circles today. You know, one thing we didn't really get to was a new James Bond title. New James Bond, the last Daniel Craig movie, has a title, uh, No Time to Die. Kind of weird, eh? I mean, like, it, it, it almost strikes me as the kind of like a line a villain would say to James Bond right before he kills them, right? Like a Russian villain. Like, he'll be like... Oh, Mr. Bond, you are trying to kill me? Well, sorry for you. This is no time to die. <laughs> you know you know what I mean? Like, that seems to be the kind of line. almost seems like a parody of a James Bond movie. It's kind of weird, but hey, you know what? I've liked, for the most part, all the James Bond movies. I've even kind of come around a little bit 
on uh, the second one, Quantum of Solace. Almost forgot the name there for a second. And, you know, Skyfall is obviously really good. And, yeah, I don't know. The Daniel Craig movies have been, by and large, pretty decent. You know, Spectre was okay. It wasn't, I don't think it was terrible, but it was okay. But anyways, new title for James Bond to go with all the other movie news this week. But like I said, that's all for me today. That's probably it for the month of August. When I see you next, we'll probably talk a little bit about TIFF. I have five tickets to go see TIFF. I got them from the media office here in Toronto. So they're very generous to give me five tickets. So we'll review a couple of movies. Maybe we'll go see. I really want to go see Parasite, which I brought up with Quentin in the interview there. You know, I want to go see Ryan Johnson has Knives Out. Is that coming coming up? You know, there's a whole bunch of other ones. Joker's making his premiere at TIFF with... uh, Walking Phoenix, and you know, there's a couple other ones as well. So I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about Tiff Wise in the coming weeks. But for now, thank you so much for listening. This has been the Showtime Movie Podcast, and as always, have a great night. Mm-hmm.